Welcome to Alphafy. I'm Ross Downs, and joining me today as ALP alumni were Emma Gendel, who's research nurse acute care for North Bristol NHS Trust, Jenny Sison, senior research midwife at Bradford Teaching Hospitals, and Claire Pegg, trust lead research nurse at Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells NHS Trust. Oh, welcome to Alphafy. <laughs> and Morgan. Okay, welcome to episode six of Alpify. And joining us today is Emma Lowe, Research Policy Senior Manager, uh, Industry Relations and Growth for the Department of Health and Social Care. Wow, that's a wordy title. A lot of words, isn't it? Um, Yeah, so how have you been? That's the first question I want to ask. How have you been, given that it's a weird time and I think we're just sort of getting to the end of the weird time and trying to bring everything back to normal. Yeah I'm laughing because of the the are you sure faces we all just pulled to there we're getting to the end of the weird time. Uh, <laughs> yeah I, I, I do think we're coming to it feels like an ending of something but kind of the expectation that there may be more to come I think but yeah it has been strange um, and um it's been really interesting actually to experience it from within the department um and because obviously the head of nhr is chris witty um and to kind of you know see some of that all going on in your place of work and and to see a slightly different side of it and then also be really involved in the national restart response and and all of that kind of thing as well as trying to make sure that we keep the rest of the show on the road. So yeah, it, it's definitely been, um, it's been really busy um, and also incredibly inspiring because it's been just amazing to hear about all of the brilliant things that have happened on the ground in research, but also just the NHS generally and how everybody is just massively pivoted to to respond um, has been incredible. So yeah, a, 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 an interesting perspective. Um, and I'm pretty tired and I need a holiday, as I'm sure we all do. Um, but yeah, overall, uh, good. Thanks, Ross. Good. Um, so usual, usual stuff to get out of the way before we start. Um, Claire, I'm going to give you a reprieve from the bingo as you've already given us your word. But yeah, so ALP bingo. So catchphrases or cliches from the programme. Uh, Emma, do you want to go first? I am going to be completely unoriginal though because I was thinking back and I couldn't think of any that I hadn't heard and the one that stands out to me most um, is actually because of what your conversation that you had about it was say more and I feel like as a perpetrator of say more I feel able to to re-add that one and I feel like I, I may well roll that one out on the podcast um, and then also I think it was Stephen that, that talked about cont- creating containers and certainly as ALP faculty, we talked about that a lot. And I and I think I probably was one of the main kind of users of that phrase while I was uh, working on ALP. So I'm, I'm stealing other people's, but they were my memories. To this day, say more fills me full of dread. <laughs> I feel a little bit proud. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those moments when I was like, no, no, I won't. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny, have you got one? 
I think mine might have already been covered as well, but the one that stands out to me most is holding the space. They talk about the space, but I think to start, I was thinking, what's the space? And then I kind of realised that, you know, what it figuratively meant. So that that's probably mine. Oh, yeah, it's such a powerful one, though. And mm. I think it, it's come up in every single episode about the way that that, that has worked. So, yeah, it's, and it came up um, especially with Jess. And I think it's something that Jess is incredibly good at. Uh, Emma. Uh, for me, I think the one that always sticks out for me is you can't pour from an empty cup, which I think has been covered a few times. And then I thought about things we did on the course and thought actually lifelong learning of that, putting your head above the parapet, finding out what's going on, using that as your learning source, really. Again, was something quite powerful to me. Daring bravely. Yeah, absolutely. Bit of Brenny Brown. Could <laughs> <laughs> Brenny Brown be a cliche for the elf course? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait, the mention of Brenny Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gutted yeah. she didn't take you up on your offer though, Ross, to join. I know. You. I did try. I did try to get. I Brenny mean, Brown. hats off to you for trying. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All I what I actually was I asked in my email was if she would do um, a kind of 10, 15 second hello. That was all I wanted, but understandably, you know, her emails, I, I don't have a direct email. It was more of a, <laughs> her team going, no, we're all right, thanks. <laughs> She's a bit busy, weird. <laughs> um, Emma, so actually I had a question and some of the work we did before was on innovative trial design. Um, and I know it's something you've spoken about before, and I'm not going to talk about sector deals and all of that kind of stuff, uh, or expect you to. But it, during the pandemic, I have seen so much innovative trial design. Is there anything around the way that you've seen these studies come on that you think we can keep or that we need to get rid of? Uh, definitely a lot we can keep. Um... And actually, I think the thing that I would most like people to take away, uh, well, two things I would most like people to take away is that I think sometimes we focus so much on this is new and different and we'll have to do a lot of preparation for it. Um, and I am always very impressed by the research delivery workforce's ability to just pick up what comes along and make it happen. And I think, you know, the pandemic in general, but, but particularly the platform designs and, and the innovative delivery approaches that have been used are really good examples of that. Um, so I think, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to do a massive rollout plan for a lot of things. You just have to think things through and, and you know, have them planned properly and people will respond. And I think that, you know, what's happened in the pandemic has been a really good and I say that as somebody who, were, you know, previously worked in workforce and learning, that I still think we can overthink things sometimes and um, and kind of over-engineer it, if you like. But the other thing is that um, I think often, and, and actually we're starting to see these questions come through about um, like studies like recovery, as to whether whether we need to change regulations and some suggestion that they've been done slightly outside of the normal rules. Um, and that just isn't the case. Um, they've all been done um, within the existing regulatory frameworks, within the existing guidance, a lot of things that the MHRA and the HRA kind of already had on the books in terms of how to do things in a more pragmatic, easier to deliver fashion, were already in waiting. They haven't been thought up for the pandemic. Um, so I think 
kind of running with that and realizing actually we've got an awful lot of innovation ready and waiting within the system um and I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to make a much stronger case and see some changes with researchers who are designing studies to actually have the confidence to take those things forward, whereas I think people have been a bit reticent sometimes previously. So, yeah, I'm I'm really hopeful. And it's, you know, they're never going to be the right thing for everything. Um, but but I think there's a lot, a lot to learn from them. What do you think? <laughs> see what you did there. Um, I'm looking forward to a time when we have 30 platform studies. That's it. So we have. I think you might, might be a little disappointed. <laughs> I think what's been quite noticeable um, from kind of my perspective, and I don't know whether or not any of you guys would agree, but there seems to be um, a lot of studies, like sponsors, who have taken on board what's going on. They've obviously seen what either their, their um, co-workers and competitors are doing and they're actually changing the way that they're now running their studies. So amendments coming in left, right and centre. And then there's also another group where nothing has changed. And these are the ones that are now being left behind. Simple things um, like uh, on-site monitors. A lot of trusts are not having visitors. And so, you know, the sponsor has kind of gone, nope, unless it's an on-site monitoring visit, we're, they're not, we're, not, we're not doing it. So, OK, that means we're therefore not recruiting. That means that you're not there, therefore meeting timelines, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas other sponsors are like, OK, right, well, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this remotely, we'll do this remotely, we can do it like this. Um, so there seems to be a very big divide in um, the sponsors and how they're thinking and processing about uh, working with the change. That was my perspective anyway. I think you make a good point, actually. Uh, I, I feel quite privileged in that I speak, I speak to a lot of different sponsors. But there has been an overwhelming feeling that they understand the pressures that the trusts are under. But it's just how they react to that. And I think as delivery staff and as, the, as an NHS, we've um, diversified and adapted to, to make these studies fit. And I'm not I'm not seeing quite the same speed of change in in sponsors. I think I think they're open to it. It's just that we've the speed that we that these changes have happened has been incredible. And we, I think we've said that week on week. So to expect anybody else to be able to have that agility, I think maybe is an over expectation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just wondering to what degree that's a kind of is that a global issue I'm thinking of you know it's it's more difficult to change an approach if something's set out as an expectation in a global company where you know they're not just thinking about how things look in in the UK whereas if it's you know UK based UK affiliate um that that is much more maybe connected in directly with the NHS and um you know working in a different way I mean, that may not be what the distinction is, but I'm just wondering if that's a, a factor. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting point uh, because it is usually these either big pharma or mm. or we're getting very, like with the vaccine studies that are coming through, very small companies. Um, so it's, yeah, there's, there's definitely some difficulties there. Jenny, have you seen any any change to the way that sponsors are reacting on sites and 
We um we actually had a um a sort of a site initiation visit for a new study um the other day and they'd come up with a problem that they didn't quite know how to get around in that they usually do one-to-one -one training with all of the staff in the clinical area which is something that people are trying to avoid in terms of footfall and not having so many people around and I don't think I think people are so used to working within the framework that we had and having to fit certain rules and feeling like they were in a, you know, in a box <laughs> and having to fit to that, that it took somebody else to suggest, well, have you seen how they did it for recovery with the videos? And, you know, and they were very open to the idea of, mm. you know, that would solve the problem. But I think sometimes it's, it's maybe looking at, like you say, what someone else has done to solve that same problem and almost just you know, taking that idea. So I don't think it's that they don't want to do it. I wonder if it's sometimes that they've just not thought of that idea yet. I wonder if it all comes down to that word permission again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. They, they need the, that, that permission to, to start thinking outside the box. Mm. Yeah. And perhaps it's if there's others, you know, other studies like recovery, for example, that have kind of set that way and it's a bit of a precedent and perhaps going forward, it may well change. And I think for studies that we have got new studies that uh, we're setting up, um, it, it's a lot easier. Sometimes it's the, it's the ones that have already been set up that we're trying to restart that yeah. we're getting those hiccups with. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point as well. I mean, I guess being on the ground delivering all these studies, you, ha you have a unique perspective in that you see all these different designs and all these different methods of delivery. Whereas maybe a sponsor's perspective is a little bit more siloed in that they only know what they know. Yeah. They don't have all these all these unique perspectives that you guys have. Um, so maybe there's there's something in that that there's there's going to take, take some time for that learning to to be able to be translated across all the different sponsors and so is it in terms of leadership because there's a there's a lot lot of change in there is there anything that you would want to keep in terms of the way that some of this has been led emma um well i think i, I think to be I suppose to follow on from what what we were just talking about, that the leadership that the the chief investigators and and their team in the recovery trial have shown, you know, it's a bold design um, and approach. And obviously, it's not. I know we talk a lot about recovery trial, and it's but it's not just a recovery trial. Um, and it, so I think the. I wonder whether there's something about. I think within research delivery we've worked really hard to generate and build communities to help people see how to do things differently and have that kind of different ways of working um, and I and I think you're right you know have have they really seen this is possible you know I, I think we focus a lot on sharing the outcomes of the science or the healthcare science of the research but not necessarily really promoting well how did you actually get that done um, and are we adding to the evidence base around whether those kinds of methods and methodologies work? Um, and and so how do they find out about it? If no one's talking about it, they don't have the conversations, you don't have the templates to share. Um, and I think the fact that they've made everything so accessible online, um, you know, that high, really high degree of transparency about how the study's running and all of the documentation and everything, 
um, you know, nothing's perfect. I'm sure there've been challenges with it as well. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of leadership. Um, and also, I, I do think a lot of people have said to me about the, the impact that the letter that the chief medical officers sent to the NHS and, the, and really positioning research as absolutely central to the pandemic response. Um, so, yeah, I think there are some really good examples of, of leadership. And we talk a lot, um, and, and you've talked a lot on the podcast as well, in the, in the programme about getting out of silos or flattening structures. But actually part of how there is a part of leadership, which is about how you use your position in the hierarchy to enable other things to happen. And actually, I think both of those are really good examples of where you do have positional power or you've got um, you know, specialist knowledge power that means you are in a position to say or do things that other people aren't um, and create those containers and give those permissions. Um, and so I, I think there have been really good examples of people like the chief medical officers, you know, saying this is what the expectation is because it gave people permission to behave in a different way. Mm. Yeah, I think it feels like it's been a real iterative process as well because it's happened so quick that the sponsors haven't had the time to sit and think through protocols in the minutiae. So things have needed changing as they've gone along. Um, and there's been a, you know, there's been a real two-way street of us talking about things that we think could make things better, and then amending them quite quickly. So I'm, um, I only really talk from the reproductive health kind of um, point of view, but we had a champions group who represent all the regions, which I'm part of, and we kind of almost used to find out about the studies once they were set up and ready to go. But during this, they realised that actually we need, you know, everybody around the table. So the sponsors and the RDMs, when that was being rolled out, involved us in that right from the start. So we'd got like a huge group of people on these calls, which, um, you know, was, was fun in the, the times when we were all trying to get to grips with the digital stuff. You're on mute. But, you know, <laughs> having everybody there around the table to start with meant that things happened really quickly and the feedback came from all angles straight away rather than it being sat your ice cream on us <laughs> rather than it, it being is, that group of people it's got to become a bingo bit by itself so I, I thought that worked really well for us that it kind of just brought everyone together right at the start and and changed things quickly didn't mean lots of amendments but it meant that it runs well now so, so emma gendel <laughs> that way. Have you found on the ground that teams are adapting quickly with with amendments and getting them through? Because I found that amazing that every time there is one, it's, it seems to be far quicker adopted. Now there's yeah. not that oh another amendment type thing anymore. It's just a case of right, it's this now. I think we've all adjusted to that far different pace, I suppose, of working. Originally, we'd have had time to think about what the amendment was and how we adapt to our working. But actually, we've had to roll with it and just draw off each other as the best way of taking the information on board, disseminating it across the team and get on with it. So I think it's made, especially in our department, I think it's made everybody a bit more adaptable to accepting change and moving on and working in that way. So I think it's been a good thing for everybody. Yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely blows my mind because I do remember, I, I vaguely remember pre-COVID, um, and every and it would be a case of oh you know this study's going to have an amendment why not just write it in now and wait for it 
wait for it to be yeah um, wait for the study to be perfect and i'm a huge advocate of done is better than perfect so get started yeah make it fit because especially with amendments that it's not going to be one (laughs) until it runs Mm -hmm. and think oh actually we need another one now so why not get it going and see what those issues are and iron them all out as you go and I think that's had to be in the case for some of the delivery teams as well. For you know, So, for example, the SIREN study, where um, you, you, it's expected that staff are going to be swabbed and blood's taken kind of two weekly and follow the antibodies. Um, you know, it's a, it's a urgent public health. It's come for public health England. Um, it's, it's agreed that trusts are going to be able to do it. Um, and it's, it's kind of very similar in the sense that we've had to kind of open it and then work out how we're going to run with it, fit the basic structures in. Um, but a lot of the time where you're trying to work with the normal support services and you're trying to open a study in parallel to what they're already offering. So what would be standard of care where standard of care hasn't quite been established yet? It means that the research process can't quite be established. And, you know, what, what your plan is on a Monday is totally different to what your plan is on a Tuesday. And by the time you got to Friday, you can't even remember what Monday was. <laughs> you know, it's it again, it's that constantly having to to move with whatever's going on um, at, at the time. And um, I think that's that can be very demanding. And, you know, I think it's setting up studies and how that happens. That's put a, a big kind of strain on and on sponsors and then thinking about how how it's most viable but it's exactly the same I think on with the delivery teams is about working about how we can actually deliver those studies on the ground floor yeah that's it's so it's so interesting to see that the way that teams deliver the studies um so I don't think I when we talk about innovative trial design and how we get that the change of design adopted and embedded within within trusts and and within research in general. I don't think it's the delivery teams that are the problem. And I don't know where, where that block is. So is, is, where do you think that might be? What, what's making it so hard? So, I mean, this is the blunt answer. So um, for, for anybody <laughs> listening, this is a massive generalization, but it's with the people that design the research. You know, if if ultimately it can be delivered in a more flexible, more innovative, more pragmatic way that sit, that is better for, and it's easier for patients to participate in, it's more accessible to people, it's easier to deliver within the care pathway. You know, all of that starts with the planning of the study and who you've spoken to during the study to make sure it's deliverable. What you were saying about um, about the uh, you know having conversations before the protocol's finalized and before everything goes forward to make sure it's deliverable you know it, it's it's that that um you know those and i wonder whether there's some a feeling of actually we need to you know maybe there is this sense of it needs to be a perfect you know think this idea of rcts being really kind of special and hived off and a really specific set of circumstances where all of your factors for for um for variation are kind of engineered out that's just not real healthcare and and there's a problem with that anyway in terms of how you design trials and and having more real world experience within them um but obviously you want it to still be a randomized trial um and 
actually doing that in the healthcare settings where it makes most sense. I think there's something about separating out. How do I design this so that I'm going to answer the question that I'm posing? And then how do I execute that well in the system? To me, are two different questions. And I think mm. that they are taken together and that sometimes the people that are doing the work to, to design those studies are then thinking that you deliver them in the setting that they work in because that's how that's what's immediately in front of them rather than asking a separate question about actually you know if this medicine or procedure or whatever it was was put into the healthcare system where would the care intervention actually take place because that should be your starting point for where you would deliver the research for all sorts of reasons but that isn't often the case and I mean I'm talking more about later phase here because obviously it's different issues when you've got an earlier phase product but um but yeah, I think it's that. I think it has to start with the design so that you, by the time you actually get to the point where you are going for, you know, you get into approving a study and you're trying to set it up within the system, trying to address things at that point is never really going to work. You're only ever going to be trying to engineer out something that that fundamentally hasn't been thought about properly. Mm. So would there be some value maybe? And, you know, we have we have like patient liaison groups and patient advocates and how important they are in designing research might there be some argument to suggest that we should maybe have a delivery aspect of that absolutely i really think so mm -hmm. um and i think that virtuous circle of learning about um you know i suppose it, it, it's the classic thing about uh, about why we talk about flatter systems and, and taking the decisions to the people that are actually doing the work because you are experts in research delivery so if you're then trying to design something to be deliverable why wouldn't you talk to those people yeah. and get their insights <laughs> and enable their leadership um while focusing on you know you focus on the design of the study and is it powered right and all of that kind of thing um but then how you actually execute it i absolutely think we should be bringing in the people that that really really know about that mm. I had a conversation once with a sponsor, it was a commercial sponsor from a, a study when I worked on ITU and you know the question that they wanted to answer was absolutely brilliant um, and you know we were really really keen to, to do it. When it actually came to the delivery part of it, it didn't translate, there was, there was a massive lack of understanding and I remember having a conversation with the monitor going, so who's on your trial steering committee? Who from a delivery perspective is on your trial steering committee? Have you got nurses? Have you got, you know, ITU, ITU nurses, if not research nurses? No, it was very much kind of that, that there was no engagement at all from, from a delivery perspective. And it for, for us that were trying to deliver it, it was impossible to deliver it because actually there was a complete lack of understanding. Um, and I, I do think it is changing. I do think there is definitely, and with, their, with a big drive as well for patient and public engagement, um, I think that has a, an additional spin on what the actual patient wants. But um, it almost needs to be kind of as compulsory when you're going for your grant application as having a PPA, you know, a, a patient and public involvement. Have you had delivery involvement? So actually that translation process happens across the board. I am well aware this is a biased community to this. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> I'm sure there's an argument against, I just can't think of one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, and I, you know, obviously, I I did work in the network for a long time before I moved to my current job. But I talk to people across the spectrum, um, and this still makes absolute sense to me. So I don't think it's that biased. <laughs> and sponsors want their studies to run well, don't they? 
So if you want your study to run well and you want it to, to you know, time to target and you want to get your patients involved in all of that kind of stuff, then actually you need to have the involvement of the people that are going to be doing it in the first place. So I, w- I wanted to change tact a little bit um, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about or ask a little bit more about leadership as that's kind of why we're here, I guess. Uh, and I wanted to ask and I want to uh, an open question. Um, what you think the most important attribute is for a leader, whether that's now post pandemic or generally, what do you think the most important attributes might be for a leader at the moment? Good tumbleweed. That's what I like. Yeah. <laughs> We're all too scared to say the cliches, aren't we? <laughs> cliches, cliches are cliches for a reason, though, right? That's. I mean, I, and she came up on the podcast recently, but there was um, something about the New Zealand Prime Minister that came on was on Twitter the other day, and she was talking about leadership in terms of empathy and sympathy. Yeah, I and. Saw that. Yeah, for me, that that for me is what I want to embody my leadership style. So, and that may well be a cliche, <laughs> but I'm comfortable with that. I'll own that. It's all right. Um, yeah, so that that for, that would be my answer, I think. Authenticity was what I was going to say. So mm. again, it's another cliche, but uh, I think that one's important. Say more. <laughs> <laughs> just think you're much more likely to be able to get your point across and get people it's, it's all cliche isn't it you know coming on the same journey with you or however you want to phrase it that you're all going for that joint effort whatever the end point might be people are much more likely to do that with you if you're authentic with them if they understand why you know why you want that to happen why things are being done and also that you um that you listen and that you're taking on their their point of view and that you're doing things as a as a team so i think people like to do things with people rather than be told what to do and being authentic to me is part of that bringing everybody together but again you can't you can't talk about this without just sounding like you've picked it out of a textbook can you? <laughs> it's got to be um it's got to be resilience uh, you know we need to our teams are going through tough times and when you roll back to what it was like at the very beginning of March not only is there issues around the whole kind of the work aspect of it but our teams were very much well like everybody really in the country when are we going to get our next food slot are we going to be able to get down to the supermarket I, I I can't get my hand on any pasta where are the loo rolls you know it was stuff that was totally taken for granted that all of a sudden um was just gone you know basic existence was was being rocked to the very core so everybody that was coming to work had issues that they were dealing with had you know additional baggage that they were dealing with and um i think coming into work taking you know with with the stuff that you're also trying to deal with um and then bringing in changes 
you know, your normal working weeks totally change. People aren't around anymore. There's new rules about this. You can't have conversations without all your meetings are scrapped. It's right. OK, the studies that I was working on yesterday, today, they were all shut. What, what am I doing? How How is it? And and I think there was a lot of emotion, mixed emotions everywhere. Um, and I think one of the things that I've found is that is that resilience, which hasn't always been easy <laughs> as um, my husband would probably vouch for because quite often you get home and go um, but uh, yeah I think it's it's been the it's been the resilience yeah how long ago does that toilet roll stuff feel like now <laughs> like, <laughs> years <laughs> yeah Emma uh, for me I think it's been supportive giving that reassurance to the team that they can, I suppose empowerment, isn't it, that they can deliver this, they can do it, they do have the skills and the knowledge to do it. Again, like you said, making sure we all know we're going on the same journey together, journey is such a cliche, but <laughs> making sure we all know why we're doing it and and that they are able to deliver on it and they can do it, being there to pick up those pieces or to support them to carry on, I suppose. So kind of touching on Claire and Jen's points as well, really, but... I think to me that's what's important yeah yeah absolutely and emma so obviously agree with all of that um i think the thing that i would uh, want to add to it is um i think there's something about accepting and and really owning where you, because I think we are partly talking about positional leadership here as, as well um, in in what we've just described. Um, that really owning the fact that you are in that positional leadership position and people are looking to you. And I think, you know, I've, I've witnessed and heard about really great examples of people who are, you know, because we were all in that, I don't have any pasta to eat and any toilet roll situation. And having a, you know, what what is going on kind of personal response to being in a global pandemic at the same time as still having to to show up and make really good decisions or try and make good decisions. And actually, there is something about leadership that um, that one of the things that um, kind of the evidence about leadership that people really value the fact that people will make decisions, even if they're the wrong ones, that you will make them. Um, and so actually there is something about owning, like, take all those factors that we just talked about, but also just showing up and making decisions in that awful who knows what's happening situation um, and and being in that leadership position. Because I'm, I'm sure that there have also been some examples where people haven't done that and have, you know, maybe wavered on decisions or just not been able to make a call. And actually, you know, that's quite unhelpful. <laughs> um, in a situation like this, even if you ultimately kind of made slightly the wrong call. So, yeah, I think the um, living up to being in that position in that moment. There's a balance, isn't there, between trying not to make rash decisions, but being yeah. decisive and actually, yeah, yeah and, and allowing your decision to come from the information you're being given as well, rather than it just being, you taking the, all of that on board. So you, you have to react almost to your team, the team that you're working with, 
and make your decision that's best for the team. And that can sometimes be in conflict with the organisational constraints from the other side. So balancing that, I think, is tough in in terms of positional leadership. Yeah. yeah. Do you think your answers would have been the same a year ago? I'm going to head shapes, which don't translate well on a podcast. A version of it, because <laughs> we've said that there, you know, because these are cliched responses, you know, so it is a version of the same thing. But I think, I think what we've been through and what we're going through, it, it's so it's such an extreme situation to be in, to be tested as a leader in. Um, that maybe the examples of what good looks like we wouldn't have had a year ago, even if you would still want, you know, people being authentic in this situation means something different when you are in a global pandemic and everybody's worried about the well-being of their relatives and their teams and having to go to work in a situation where you don't feel safe. You know, that's quite a different thing to what, what we would have meant in by authenticity 12 months ago. But, so I think they're still the same, um, the same traits. Uh, but maybe how we think about them are a bit different. I hadn't even started the ALP 12 months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a roller coaster anyway, but doing it during a pandemic is like another level of ALP, isn't it? <laughs> you get a super duper award. <laughs> well, I think we wimped out a little bit. We didn't need to, I was going to say we didn't need to come up with projects in the end. It was just there you go, <laughs> deal with that. Life. Life is your project. <laughs> yeah, at least I'd had a, at least I'd had a couple of years sort of embed my learning from ALP before a global pandemic. So. <laughs> Not so bad. We're all, we were all sitting there at the start when we were just about to do our projects thinking oh my goodness we've learned so much like how do you know which bits of it to use and how do you not you know like leave your brain and just forget that it's that it's ever even been there and you know we just need something like a project that we can embed it with and then our boom every last little bit that we'd learn we're like oh my gosh how do we deal with this or oh, let me think <laughs> so um, our little ALP group was a massive help through all of this because we were all like oh my goodness how are you doing that and people have come up with can you remember when Stephen Locke did the fishbowl and we were like oh yeah <laughs> so it was quite good that we um, everyone was prompting everybody with with thing you know tips and hints a year ago Claire that you and I hosted the um Celebration, celebration day just over a year ago that, that was my celebration day yeah it was oh, ever, yeah. yeah 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 gosh times have changed <laughs> <laughs> which was fun that was fun it was it was fun so yeah i have a question about um because in my in my fantasy land the people that have been through alp um we're so well placed to deal with the that shift to instantly working online for lots of things having to really work work across boundaries we can just name all of the cliches all of the bingo right now but but because you were all so kind of set up for that and and it you know it was in you that actually that would have really played out well and and positioned you well for you know nobody's positioned well for a, a global pandemic but you know that it would have served you well and that those things came to the fore so ha has it has it helped you i'll go oh. first shall i um <laughs> yes yeah i mean the 
Yeah, you sort of touched on digital there, but the, the digital aspect of it has been massive for me. There have been people that I have met with virtually that are sort of clunking around and not sure and uncomfortable in the space. Or is it is second nature for any, I think anybody that's been through ALP looking at a Google Drive, using a shared document, having a hangout. It's all of those aspects tied in so beautifully into the course. And you know, the fact that we have the Google Suite is a huge benefit. And I think now it's accelerated everybody else's learning and appreciation of it in the same way that we had during that year. So I think that everybody now appreciates it as much as we do did already. Um, I'm not saying that all of us are brilliant at it because there are <laughs> definite learnings to be had <laughs> for all of us, as the beginning of this podcast may have <laughs> shown. <laughs> but it's the fact that you you accept those mistakes or you accept those errors and you know that there's going to be teething issues, and that's okay and how you adapt to those. I think if you, for me personally, it's it's just being comfortable with the tech, I think makes such a difference. I don't know, anybody else? Yeah, I suppose um, for us, um, I kind of had to set up the, the recovery study. So going from my more strategic um, role, it was very much a case of, right, let's let's get this one going. Um, and we were, we actually did a, it wasn't anything kind of fancy with videos and stuff like that, but it, because um, the trust don't support that in many ways. <laughs> she says through critter too. Um, but uh, it was something simple like a telephone conference and um, everybody was invited to it that, that, that we absolutely needed. We got everybody on their table and everybody was at that table every week, regardless at that time, those decisions were made. It was rolled out that week, next week, right, let's do this. And they were kind of half an hour, 40 minute meetings, but because there wasn't any of the, um, the, the, the usual sort of conversation, I mean, yes, that there are pros and cons for that, but they were really quick, really decisive, really productive. Um, and it meant that we were able to kind of get, get this study up and running, delivered within, opened within nine days, recruited within four hours. You know, like it was amazing what was able to be achieved. Um, and if we'd have had to have done the, oh, I'll send out an invite. Oh, no, they've got to come. We've got to meet for them in that room. Oh, they can't do a Wednesday. Well, can you do a Thursday? Those kind of conversations, it, it just wouldn't have happened. But it was it, it was that worked really well definitely wear really well. I'll send a doodle poll. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, there has been a change in emphasis when people are in, you would send out a doodle poll and see when everyone was free. But now it's just a case of, oh, no, I'll find, I'll find the space to do that and get it done. And yeah, that's probably aside from this, but that's for me, that's been a huge benefit of this. I hate doodle polls. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, has there been lots of learning for you? Because you've had a, you had a year um, as alumni before this all kicked off, so there's kind of some time to for you to feel comfortable. Yeah, I think less the digital because again, our trust doesn't support it. So, but still, when Teams has come in, I've felt less scared of having a go on it because it's similar to Google. So, 
bits that I, I can cope with. Uh, but I've kind of been in work more. So it's been more about uh, seeing myself as that leader of the team when I've been left to run the team for the day and working out what they need, what I can draw from the, the fact that actually it's okay to be vulnerable and not have all the answers, but to know where to find them and go back to people with them, to realise when they need more resilience, that team resilience, when people are having a bad day and just listening to them sometimes. All they want is a shoulder to offload onto. You haven't got to have all those answers. So, yeah, I think I've drawn on a lot of the skills over the past few months, definitely. Does that answer your question, Emma? It does. It does. Can't make that's what we obviously what we'd want to hear. <laughs> it so really would be awkward if we'd said no. Yeah, no, no, none of it, no. Whoops. Yeah. And that's the end of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um so how do we how do we carry on? working and pushing those boundaries that we've we've all been doing during this time and all of those skills we were just talking about there how do we how do we keep expanding our comfort zone so that we carry on this learning i guess continuing to put ourselves outside of our comfort zone takes us forward yeah i mean the comfort zone is is fairly wide right now right yeah <laughs> but it could get bigger is, is where everyone's happiest yes uh, yeah it's something that, that i was asked recently like what what do you do now and it's always something that alumni new alumni especially jenny sorry um ask once they finish the program like what what now how do i how do i use this and carry on learning and doing that continued learning what do i do there's a very structured thing in academia you know you do your your undergraduate degree then you do your master's or whatever and then you do so it's very systematic but this is very different so how do we mm -hmm. how do we carry on i think it's once you've started to put yourself out of your comfort zone it's probably easier to do it again yeah. that initial thought of doing i mean when we were first on the AOP and even just getting up and doing the elevator pitch, I was a bit like, oh, goodness me, I don't really want to stand here and do this in front of all these people. And then a few weeks ago, they were filming me for Panorama and I just I would never have done that prior to this. I would have, you know, hidden in a corner. But I think you get to the point where you just think, well, it wasn't that bad. Nothing actually happened. <laughs> so sorry, I'll have another bash. And I think I've got a lot more confident at just giving it a go and knowing that you don't have to get it perfect. But, you, you know, if you've turned up and you've tried, then you've at least tried, haven't you? It's never as bad as you think it's going to be, is it? Any of it? Yeah. It's usually what people say when they finish this. <laughs> I think what you said about um, the comfort zone and how big it is, I, you do make you wonder whether or not we've actually even got a kind of comfort zone at the moment because, you know, there is... When when we were setting up and we knew that the pandemic was imminent and we were waiting for all these, all these patients to come kind of flooding in, um, we knew that we had to sort of move into into what it was going to be like with with um, fast pace and 
And then when you're in that fast pace and you see the numbers start dwindling, then it was another case of, all right, so it looks like we're um, emerging now. So your comfort zone was fast paced and then it was not. And and now we're in this kind of no man's land, what's kind of coming. And there doesn't seem to be much comfort anywhere, really. So I think in that sense, are we even in a comfort zone constantly having to, to to move to be able to mitigate what's going on kind of globally and also within the trusts that we're working in and other areas as well you know it must have felt like that for you Emma it's it's just been one constant movement me Emma I feel like ALP's really helped me to have the skills, though, to manage with that, because I would have been drowning in it if it wasn't for the fact that you've taught me to, like, step away and make time for myself. And when it when it first all happened, I went from being sort of part time to full time. I've always pretty much worked full time anyway, but being available all the time because everybody knew that even if you were at home, you could work from home now. You did. You're accessible. Yeah. And also you weren't going anywhere or doing anything. So. I felt like I was at work and available constantly. And as somebody said to me, it's, it's not like working from home anymore. It's like living at work. And it's made me have a bit more res resilience in the way that I think right now I'm not I'm not at work now. I'm going to turn it all off. I'm going to put it down. I'm not going to look at social media and I'm going to, you know, it's made me give myself a bit more time. I think I don't think I'd have done that if I hadn't have done ALP and I think I'd have been in a mess right now. <laughs> So I think I think all of those things were already there. It's the language and knowing that they're they're things, mm, you know, yeah. the, the resilience and the space. That, and as soon as you get some structure around them, which ALP gives you, you're able then to notice them much quicker. Yeah. So you you don't get to that point where you're like, oh my god, how do I deal with this? Because you've 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 seen it coming, so you ha you're you get given some foresight. And actually, Emma, I'd be really interested to know your point of view, given that leadership is your thing. <laughs> Remind me of what the question that you asked. <laughs> <laughs> How do we continue developing? Oh, yes. Yeah. All that stuff. So obviously, I've got a different perspective on this from an ALP perspective. Um, so from an immediate learning thing, um, there was a reasonable amount of certainly the way I approached my of the design of the program that were informed by a program I did at Roffey Park, um, and we struggled with the how do you continue the learning when it's so immersive, um, and it's so much about how you kind of live and breathe the program as you're doing it. And I've remained it really connected with my learning. Uh, we still talk now and in some ways actually when we meet up even if we go away for the weekend together it's like an extended set meeting um but we still have airtime because they're the only people that you can actually have that conversation with because they're the only people who really understand what exactly you're talking about and what you're reflecting on so i think from a personal perspective there is something about how do you remain connected to the people that you can really have that reflective conversation with and that isn't going to be everyone on the program with the best will in the world um, it's going to be the people that you're able to have that conversation with. So really making the time for that, I think, has served me well. Um, and then with my kind of, um, it's not even ALP, actually, it's with my DHSC hat on. 
The thing that I always have a question about, and I'm sure I've asked this, um, you know, because this comes up always, as you said, Ross, in every time we have a, a you know, that there is a, a celebration event or a group meeting of how do we carry this on? Um, and I think there's something about how you, again, not for everybody necessarily, but how do you use your collective power? You know, you are all leaders in the system and increasingly have more and more positional power within the system as well. And you are the experts in what you do. So how do you collectively use that to influence the system? Because you aren't the most listened to group. So how do you change that together, knowing what you know about how to influence? And from a department perspective, obviously, there are individual people who have a lot of influence, but actually, it's well-organised groups that really get um, their foot in the door and representatives of those groups that are really able to influence decision makers. So whether it's even within the CRN, how could you use that collective power more? But you would need some people to want to do that. It does need to be organised. It does need to be, you know, a, co a collective thing. Um, and then that kind of leads me to the, as you all progress more, and I'm thinking particularly of kind of Claire's cohort, that, and, and obviously the rest of you following closely behind, but, you know, the more senior that you get, you know, the whole point when we were deciding where to pitch this was that it wasn't the people who were already in those senior leadership positions. It was the people that were going to grow into those roles and bring a different way of thinking and doing to those roles. So if you then are growing into those positions, how do you strategically do things differently? So are you having conversations about that? That if you were leading bits of the network or you were leading, and some of you will now be in very senior roles within your organisations, then strategically, how are you doing things differently because you know differently? And there's doing that and then there's utilising the network of ALP and bringing that to a wider group. So I think it's the... Um, you know, carry your own learning on, which has got to be your own your own responsibility, of course. But then how do you really do things together to to make the world that you want to be different? Because it, you do have that within your gift to do that. I know it may not feel like that every day, but you do. That's lovely. just a small Thank challenge you. there. Then. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> just leave that with you. Yeah. <laughs> but on that note, uh, thank you all so much for being part of this. This is the last episode of Alpify Season 1. Hopefully we'll have some exciting news about the second series soon, but I want to take this moment to thank everyone that's been a part of this, including all of the alumni that have joined me and obviously all of the guests that have made this so interesting and so much fun to make. And I hope you enjoyed listening to them just as much as I did making them. Take care, everyone.